0: Are you public with your infertility story or are you more private and need to know basis about it? Today, I'm talking to Monique Farouk, infertility advocate and warrior. Monique shares her unique perspective on infertility as the host of the podcast, Infertility and Me, and on her Instagram of the same name, wife, mom, women's health and infertility advocate. Monique has been an entrepreneur for more than 10 years. When she isn't obsessing over home and work life, you can find her on Instagram creating content for her award-winning podcast entitled Infertility and Me. She created the podcast after her own path to motherhood was disrupted by female factor infertility. Through the podcast, Monique has been able to reach thousands of men and women from all over the world, passing the mic to other survivors to share their stories authentically. Monique's podcast was featured in Apple iTunes' new and noteworthy Editor's Picks in March, April, and May of 2022. And today she's talking to me about her fertility journey her work as a fertility advocate, and what it's like being so public about infertility on social media. Let's dive in. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves-Azzaro, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian. And I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome, Monique. I am so excited to have you here with me today on the podcast. Why don't
1: you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, thank you, Melissa. It's truly an honor to be here with you. I love your work, what you do not only on your podcast, but yeah, information that you freely give on Instagram is so invaluable and I appreciate the work you do. So thank you for having me. And yeah, so my name's Monique. I reside on the East Coast of the United States with my family and I'm an entrepreneur and I work with my husband, have been for over 10 years now, and I am an IVF. Mom, and I have a science baby. He's five and a half years old and running my entire life. <laughs> That's to put it short and sweet for you guys.
0: That's awesome. And yes, and I had connected with you originally on Instagram. I've been following you for quite a while, a while. too, yeah. you know, both on your infertility and me account and also your personal account, just because you know, you're doing great work to uh, your advocacy around fertility and fertility struggles. But I think, you know, you've put this, this really humorous spin on it that makes it really relatable. And so I've always enjoyed your content as well. So the feeling's mutual.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate
0: you. It's always such a complicated story, but remembering mm-hmm. back to when you first started thinking about trying to conceive, you know what's what's kind of your story there? How'd that go?
1: We had been married for about four and a half years when I was diagnosed with infertility. Let me check. Let me make sure. Me? no. Two and a half years. I'm sorry. I was 27 when we got married, and I was 29 when I was diagnosed. And I started getting scared because I had never been pregnant before ever in my entire life. You know, us 80 babies, we were in 70s babies too. We were all pushed the pill, birth control, the condom movement in the 90s and protecting ourselves at all costs and such. And so for me, I just... I never wanted to be a mom before I wanted to be a mom, if that makes sense. I was very particular about that part of my life. And I didn't know when I was very young in my early 20s if I ever wanted to be a mom or if I would even get married because I'm an ambivert. I like my freedom. I like to come and go as I please. I didn't want to be tied down. And I had watched people in their late teens and early 20s give birth and struggle. And I didn't want that for myself. And my parents didn't want it for me either. and so. They, especially my mom, because I could go to her about sexual things. And so because we had that open relationship, it was it was a no brainer for me. Look, we're not getting pregnant before we want to get pregnant. Okay, we're going to make the decision when we want to make the decision. And so that is how I live my life. And I prevented it for many years with birth control. And then when I was ready, before we got married, I got I took myself off. And I haven't been on birth control since then. And I've still, even after having my son, never been pregnant or come up pregnant to any degree. So I've never suffered with miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies, anything of that nature. So for us, getting started was I started getting scared, like (laughs) something is wrong.
0: Yeah, that's always, I always ask my clients that question, you know, have you ever been pregnant? Have you ever seen a positive pregnancy test? You know, even if it is a very early pregnancy, you know, that results in a chemical pregnancy or or maybe they have, you know, a period that's a little heavier than normal, you know, super early miscarriage, but it gives us more information about what's happening. So At that point, was that when, did you go to your OBGYN first to talk to about, you know, potentially what's going on or what was your next step?
1: Yeah, so at the time I... I honestly don't remember if I went to an OBGYN first. I think I went directly to the fertility clinic because it was privately owned. And so they didn't require a referral. They would do the referral for you to go to the radiologist to get the HSG. They would do the blood work for me and such. And she just asked me the basic questions that my OBGYN would have asked me and how long it had been since we trying to conceive. And then also how long I had been off of birth control. And so... I just went straight to the fertility clinic. They had me do all of the testing and the blood work and all those things. And I was diagnosed with right tubal blockage that same year in 2012.
0: Okay. So what were the next steps? Like, What did they
1: try next? So we did an IUI that Mm -hmm. same month after the HSG and it came back with right tubal blockage. We did an IUI. I didn't like the fertility clinic I was at. I didn't feel cared for. I did not feel like I was wanted there, like my money wasn't good enough. And so I didn't go back to them. And then I, in turn, didn't go back for four years to seek treatment. So that's my surprise moment with my story. We did the IUI. It wasn't successful. And then we just stopped altogether with fertility, seeking fertility treatments. I just got a really bad taste in my mouth dealing with that particular clinic. And the clinic was close to my home at the time. I was living in Pennsylvania and it was a predominantly Caucasian community. And I just didn't feel like I was wanted there. And so it just left a really bad taste in my mouth. I never went back and I was intimidated by fertility clinics from that point on because most doctors in the fertility space are of Caucasian descent. and I just didn't feel safe. And unfortunately for me, that means that I went through four more years of not knowing, confusion, unnecessary arguments, all types of unnecessary things happening in our marriage. As far as conflict is concerned because I was just so irritated and angry about why my body wasn't functioning the way it was created to. And from there, it took a lot of healing, a lot of talking and a lot of communicating in order for us to get on the same page. Because again, my husband, a hetero cis man who's who's, who's already accomplished so much in his life there's no way you're going to tell him he can't get his wife pregnant. Right. So there's that factor. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you want to go and move forward with fertility treatments. Your spouse has to be on board because you need what they have. Right.
0: (laughs) Yes, you do. It takes two, two sets of DNA to make a baby. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that experience. And I think, you know, your story really illustrates some of some of what I hear the out there.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, it's definitely with fertility clinics. I've heard things like they just treat you like a number. They're just a factory. They don't really care. They have all the women on the same schedule, you know, basically. So the doctor can transfer all on the mm-hmm. same day and then check out and go play golf. You know, yeah. it was in Pennsylvania, you said was mm-hmm. like, which, Again, it would be a little unexpected that I would feel like you wouldn't receive equitable treatment there. But again, depends on the clinic, depends on the doctors, depends Mm -hmm. on the people. We in New Hampshire, there's only really one. They're not even really a fertility clinic. It's a Mm -hmm. OBGYN with like additional credentials. Mm -hmm. And their office is terrible and their nurse is worse. And I hear so many horror stories of The things she tells my patients with PCOS, you know, it's just, just really like, it's it's horrible when a doctor is like discouraging and not welcoming, you know, and it's really a barrier to care because, you know, it, it made you scared to go back for four years. And it was all that time you could have been undergoing treatments and just, you know, we're it wasn't you. It was them, you
1: know? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. We have to start holding medical professionals accountable. And that's why they get away with things for so long. And, you know, that, there was a TV show that came out last summer and it was called Doctor Something. But it was based on the life of a doctor down south in Texas for years was butchering people and he had his own practice and he was performing surgeries when he never finished medical school and he was supposed to have been working in a different part of medicine, but then he started going back into surgeries and he was like literally butchering people. And the only reason he got away for it for so long, because nobody was reporting him enough. People weren't reporting his bad practices. And so we just need to start holding our medical professionals accountable, reporting instances where things are going wrong and or just not giving them your business because that's what it is. It's a business for them. They're caring for you, but it's still a business for them.
0: Yeah. And when we're talking about fertility treatment, it's a lot of money that you're you're giving them to help you get pregnant. You know, I do want to mention also that women of color um, tend to have higher rates of infertility is what the research shows but lower rates of seeking treatment. And I think that this is part of, part of the reason why, you know,
1: if you feel not welcome,
0: yeah. the only barrier the distrust is cost. Oh, it's yeah.
1: distrust, you know, it's, it's the thought of with any patient and not just women of color is, will I be safe here? Will they take care of me? Will I die on this medical table? You know, and so it's all about trust. It's all about trust.
0: Yeah. yeah. A little off topic, but similar. <laughs> have you, have you seen Aftershock yet? I keep wanting to see it. I saw it just came out on, on Hulu last week.
1: I, think. I haven't yet. Nope. I haven't oh, yet.
0: Yeah. Is it good? I want to, I, it's mm-hmm. on my list. I'm waiting for what I call my girl TV nights when my husband's like <laughs> yes. coaching or out that's yeah, my, absolutely. when I watch my stuff. But yeah, similar about, you know, medical treatment, Mm -hmm, medical mm -hmm. mistreatment, you know, particularly with like maternal fatality and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't find that stuff triggering as much as I used to. I used to not be able to see things like that because my son was born 24 weeks premature and I lost a lot of blood a week after I gave birth to him. So. That stuff was those types of shows were very triggering for a couple of years, but I'm OK now to watch them. But I do want to watch it. I think I just forgot. So <laughs> thank you for the reminder, Melissa. <laughs> yeah.
0: So OK, so you gave it away. You had your son. What happened in the meantime? Like, like so OK, so the four years go by and you're
1: just yeah. angry and frustrated and mm-hmm. not working too place. much. Yeah. Not working a... too much, exercising too much, barely having a menstrual cycle kind of thing going on, then going pescatarian, then going full on vegan. I did it. Listen, I did all the things you guys, all the herbs, there's not many herbs I haven't tried. And I love herbs. So I know where they fit into my life for me specifically, but it's not the end all be all either. But it was just a lot of holistic care for myself, a lot of spiritual practices to help get me through and to get my mind and emotional state in a position where I could be a mom, because at the end of the day, none of what we do fertility wise to prepare ourselves physically matters if our emotional and mental health is not in place before we actually get pregnant and give birth. And I think that's a part that we often forget about while we're on this train ride of parenthood and trying to conceive that we forget about caring for our emotional selves. And for me, that became the year before, I'll say we actually went back for treatments that became like a light bulb went off. And I was like, girl, what does this even matter if you look good and you're in shape if your emotional stuff is all messed up? You know?
0: Yeah, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the whole idea of getting pregnant that mm-hmm. we forget to consider you know, am I actually in a good enough place mentally and emotionally to be a parent? You know, assuming the yeah. pregnancy, I mean, you kind of hope that those nine to 10 months will give you mm-hmm. a little bit of time to, to mentally adjust, but it's so important. You know, as much as I hate when people tell women to just relax or mm-hmm. just lower your stress and it'll happen. There is a very large part of a healthy pregnancy and a healthy life, just period, yeah. that comes from mindset and, you know, learning how to care for yourself and feeling worthy of caring for yourself in whatever mm-hmm. way that is, whether that's feeding yourself nourishing foods or taking herbs or doing the kind of things that you need to feel good, that you know you need to feel good.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's hard. It's hard because there's so much to juggle. There's so many different ways that we can prepare ourselves for parenthood and trying to become pregnant. is a very, very small part of being a good mom or dad, yes. you know, there's but so much it's, more to it.
0: At the same time, it's so overwhelming because it just takes over your life when you're in it. Literally
1: yes. obsessed. Yes. <laughs> Yes, a
0: step yes, away from the ovulation tests, a step away, you know, just take Oh my gosh, a little, yeah, so much second. so.
1: Yeah. That between that, between and see, for me personally, I wasn't searching Google during the four years. Of course, I did the Google search thing, of course. And then it got to a point where I matured past that and I just started focusing on my actual diagnosis and how I could help heal that. And what could possibly get me closer to having a, a clear a clear fallopian tube on that right side that they said was blocked? What could I do? And so that's when I became more obsessed with my exercise regimen that I was already obsessed about with anyway, in my nutritional aspects, which is what led me to going vegan because I feel like I just needed to cleanse myself. I had spent many years eating a certain kind of a way and I wasn't really big meat eater to begin with. I'm very much the kind of person who just in terms of protein, I always listen to my body and what I'm craving that's not, you know, nutritionally detrimental to my health and being a conscious eater and such. So it was it wasn't a very difficult transition for me. So I think that when we're trying to conceive and optimizing our health I wouldn't suggest like going full force in, you know, take it step by step. One habit here, one habit there, improving it and going forward from there.
0: Exactly. It's the baby steps and see some success with those. I always tell people, you know, every January 1st, we wanna swear mm-hmm. we're going to the gym every day. <laughs> and it's like, how about, how about we put three days a week on the calendar for this week? And if you do three days this week and you feel good about it, do three days again next week. And then maybe the next week, maybe then you can add a fourth day, you know? Right, exactly. If you're building upon the successes of things that you're already consistently doing, like that's the way to make a habit stick, you know?
1: Absolutely, I totally agree. I totally agree.
0: So how did you go about finding a new doctor or a new clinic?
1: So I was I had tried searching black endocrinologists, reproductive endocrinologists in my area because it is a very diverse part of the East Coast where, where we live. Mm-hmm. And I figured it's got to be at least one. Maybe I can find at least one a male, or either female, preferably, of course, a, a female. And so I couldn't find anyone at the time close to me that was within an hour's distance, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I kept hearing in commercial on the radio and I heard it three times before I made the call and got on their website to learn more about them. And it, and that's how I find my reproductive endocrinologist on the radio. They had commercial running and I heard it every day or every other day for about a good couple weeks before I went ahead and checked their website. I was like, okay, I'm just going to check it out. They're on the radio. They must be halfway legit. Right. And so really nice people, A team of male and female endocrinologists, which was fantastic. And you were able to choose. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So you were able to choose your doctor. You didn't have to go with the doctor who was available, sort of a thing. I think that happens in some more of your franchise, like fertility clinics, where they have, you know, multiple locations all over the, the nation. But this one is a boutique agent clinic and they have a couple locations surrounding where we uh, were living at the time. And so I um, booked that consult once my husband said he was ready. And so we go, I liked him. He was comfortable and the consult wasn't rushed. She didn't rush us out. She did have me do some blood work straight away so she could get an idea for herself where we might have to go. I had to do the HSG again, of course, because it had been four years prior. So it was long overdue. And I came back with hypothyroid, slightly hypothyroid. And then the right tubal blockage had cleared itself. So there was no longer any right tubal blockage. And I had some uterine polyps that needed to be removed. And so that was the second diagnosis.
0: Yes. So for people who are listening who maybe haven't experienced an HSG before, do you want to walk through what that's like a little bit?
1: Yeah. So it's like getting a pap smear in many ways and how it feels, at least for me. A lot of people report having a lot of pain when it's done, but for me, it felt much like a pap smear. And They put the dye into the cervix so that they can see the fallopian tubes and get a good look at the ovaries as well to make sure there's no blockages, to make sure there's no scarring in the ovaries as well. And it's a monitor. It sits on your left or your right, and the radiologist performs it. And there's a couple of nurses in there with you and such. And I had a very pleasant experience, both the first and second time with the radiologist and I didn't experience any any more pain than, say, a pap smear, but it just allows them to see what's going on inside and see if there's anything prohibiting pregnancy.
0: Yeah, I'm g- I'm glad it was not an, an eventful thing for you. I had um, <laughs> had a saline sonogram once, and the nicest thing I can say about it is that it was over fast. <laughs> Right. I've heard the saying, yeah. (laughs) The the nicest I can say. So, okay. So did they sort of immediately kind of schedule you to get those polyps out and come up with a plan from there?
1: So she put me on level for a very low dosage of level thyroxin, about 50 micrograms at the time for the hypothyroidism. And then we scheduled the uterine polyp procedure with my OBGYN. So my endocrinologist doesn't do anything outside of just the fertility aspect of it all. And so I had to go to my OBGYN to get the polyps removed. And that was an outpatient surgery. And much like having, I would say it's the equivalent of having, I don't know what to call it but it wasn't very invasive. I didn't feel like, and I recovered pretty quickly. And so that was a great experience. And then we were able to move on with fertility treatments. Now I chose to go with natural cycle IVF, which is a less medicated form of IVF. And they work with your body's natural ovulation cycles and menstrual cycles. And you don't give you a whole lot of hormones to administer during your cycles. And that we did in July, we did our first egg retrieval, July of 2016.
0: Awesome. And how many eggs did they retrieve when they did that? for do you remember?
1: Oh yeah. I remember every detail. I'm sure. They do not, with natural cycle IVF, because you're on less hormones, they do not stimulate more than what they need and they do not transfer more than one egg. And so they collect one, the biggest one, the one that seems the healthiest, and that is what they retrieve, only one at a time.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: You mm-hmm. know, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely
0: considering some of the, you know, upcoming changes to IVF that may <laughs> have to happen in certain states, you know, at least it's, it's almost a less invasive way of yeah. ensuring that you're not going to get more embryos than what you need. So that's good. It's um,
1: significantly cheaper, which was another aspect that we were looking at because we didn't want, I didn't, I wanted to try something that was easier on the body first. And if we had to move into full IVF with the stems and all that, then we will do it. I didn't want to start out up here at 10. I wanted to start here at five. And if we have to, then we'll move up. And that was my, my, my thinking when I was researching on my own and learning more about natural cycle IVF. And I was under 35 back then. And so that made me a candidate for the natural cycle IVF.
0: Hey there, so before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. That's great. Some of the fertility, you know, ovulation stimulating meds and the trigger shots and all of that. And sometimes injectables like, yeah. you know, it can be a lot to manage, but also, yeah. you know, side effects and not feeling great and feeling super bloated. So it's nice to know that there's, you know, a more natural option that's available if it's available to you, like
1: if you qualify for that. I'm sure many of your listener friends know how much hormones affect just us as beings, as as mm-hmm. everyday people. And when your hormones are disrupted, it really does something to your mental and your physical, of course, has symptoms of disrupted hormones and you gain weight and you become sluggish, fatigue, brain fog, all of which I have experienced, but yet I was in the best shape of my life. And so that is why I had to have to level the level of rocks and three months prior to the procedure for removing the uterine polyps. And so from the point of the first egg retrieval was an unsuccessful cycle. The egg and sperm did not create an embryo. They were not compatible. And so we moved on the following month and did another cycle. It went really well, no complications. And because of it being a natural cycle IVF, there's no chances for OHSS, which is mm-hmm. over hyperstimulation, right? And so you could create all of these follicles, like an insane amount. I'm talking really 20. I've seen people with 60 follicles, like it's just exploding, just ready to explode. Their belly gets big and it's just horrible. And that was the other thing that I really liked about natural cycle, right? IVF, you really didn't have to worry about that at all. Not at all. So the the cycle that we had the second time was our successful cycle.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. OHSS, there's a higher risk for that with PCOS, which is the majority of my audience, you know, because AMH is high and their follicle count tends to be higher. So yeah, I tend to see numbers like that 60, 70, which, you know, really raises that risk for OHSS, which is, you know, can be a medical emergency situation. So we want to avoid that if possible. So you got pregnant. That's amazing. I know you've already alluded to this and I knew this about you, but your son was, was a micro preemie. How was, mm-hmm. how was the pregnancy up to that point? Did it seem like everything was progressing normally? Were you feeling good? Was was he growing well? All of All of those good
1: things? Yeah, he was always growing on time and very active in the womb. And he was very he's always been kind of skinny. And uh, my husband and I were very small people in our younger years. So that didn't surprise me. So during my pregnancy, I had a scare at 14 weeks where I went to the bathroom and it was blood dripping like I was on my menstrual cycle. And so I was rushed, rushed myself to the hospital, which wasn't very far from my house, luckily. And they looked through the sonogram. I think it was an was it ultrasound. It would have been an ultrasound that his sac was almost privy, which is covering the cervix. You don't want that when you're pregnant. It causes premature birth and it could complicate things for mom and baby. So I was almost, my placenta was almost privy, but it wasn't quite there. It was like a little too close, but not actually privia. And so that's what was causing the bleeding. And then I didn't have any other scares after that. There was some light bleeding for a couple of days after that scare was during the weekend. And it's always on the freaking weekend when something right? happens in pregnancy and your doctor's <laughs> not on call and it's like their weekend. It's just so crazy, right? And so the rest of the pregnancy was fine. It was, I really enjoyed being pregnant and I, I actually miss it. And that's something that has taken me a long time to get over is not completing a pregnancy. Mm. And so- I was 23 weeks, four days when I went into premature labor with him. Again, it was on the weekend on a Friday and same situation where I started bleeding and I went to the bathroom and I was still bleeding. And it was just like, it was like I was on my menses and it's just dripping into the toilet. And so I I didn't want to drive myself to the hospital. And I was having some slight cramps, almost felt like Braxton Hicks and so i called the ambulance and they rushed me to the hospital and i was left there in the hospital for a week being monitored constantly in labor and triage department and so it was a little shocking yeah, i just didn't think that it would end up that way you know after all that we had been through with ibf but of course with ibf it has its complications too because your baby is more likely to have heart conditions they're more likely to be born early and So there's all these variations of things that can happen with having a science baby, unfortunately. So (laughs) I have experienced a lot (laughs) of the statistical data out there and what can happen. And then being a black woman, we're predisposed to having higher premature birth rates. And a lot of that could be fixed if we made better lifestyle decisions nutritionally. So that's a whole other topic though.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so they kept you for about a week. So was he mm-hmm. just over twenty four weeks when he was born?
1: Yeah, twenty four and four days. Yeah.
0: And how big how days.
1: big, or should I say how little was he at that point? Yeah. So he was so little. See, his length was twelve inches and he was just under uh, let's see, he was 1.9 ounces. Yeah. So not quite too, but close. Oh my
0: goodness. You know, speaking of science, like thank goodness for science with things <laughs> like, like the NICU. Yeah. And I was, as a dietitian. I had to do, you know, my hospital rotations. And so I spent some time in the ICU, the, you know, adult ICU, as well as a little bit of time in the NICU. And yeah, you're just like these are the most badass humans in the entire mm-hmm. world who like work in these departments because they are literally keeping people alive from minute yeah. to minute. And my my nephews were born. My nephews were twins, so they were oh. born twenty nine weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, you know, which is not all that early for thirty weeks, maybe uh, not all that yeah. early for. But they
1: still consider it early because the loans have just. Yeah. just become fully developed and not quite as strong as it should be anything under they say 32 weeks is quite early so yeah it's a yeah. lot Yeah,
0: and then it just you know they were fine and they were both like almost Wonderful. around three pounds but it's one of those you know like what you were saying it adds all these things that you have to uh check on in the future mm-hmm. like you know, RSV suddenly yeah. became a thing. We needed to worry about the eye. You know, they had to
1: go have their eyes checked and they you know, all that of once the- a week, if they're longer than the NICU, they go once a week, get their eyes checked. till so they go home and RSV is an issue up until like they're four or five years old, you know, for them catching it. So it's a lot. Yeah, it's definitely a lot to make you overwhelmed as a new mom and dad, you know,
0: Right. As if it's not already overwhelming, yes. enough having a newborn. Right?
1: <laughs> um, How is he doing now? He's five and a half, did you say? Yeah, he's five and a half. He's in the 80, uh, 85th percentile of his height and weight. So there's no issues there. He was very small up until his fourth year. And his fourth year is when we saw the spike, the humongous spike in his growth as far as physically is concerned. He always looked a little bit smaller before that, but he has no mental delays or anything like that. He's actually ahead of schedule mentally. And he's been reading since he was four. And there's just no evidence there that he was born as early. You would never know it unless I told you. Yeah.
0: That's wonderful. With the twins, with my nephews, just because Mm. they were so small. And my sister is five foot nothing and her husband is not tall either. So like (laughs) the boys were not going to be tall, Super no big, matter, yeah. regardless, you know, she did end up because they were in August birthday. She ended up, you know, having them not quite behind a year in mm-hmm. school, but even so they're still, you know, the other, other kids are a full head taller than them.
1: Yeah. They won't be, if your parents are not that big, Yeah, they won't be. But see my husband and I are both short people. I'm five four, and my husband is five, five. But my son, by the time he's 10, he's going to be bigger than both of us because he's halfway there now. He's all he's like sits right about my shoulders. But we have tall people on both sides of our family. So it skipped us, but not him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So I know recently you were talking about how you had decided to stop trying for Mm -hmm. a sibling. How far did you pursue treatment, you know, in in terms of, of having a second child? I never went back. (laughs) Never
1: mind okay. <laughs> I just got testing done that was last summer and the summer before I had some tests done and just to see where my body was, see how things were functioning and if it would be a lot different from the first time going through fertility treatments and they found some cysts on my ovaries and mostly they were concerned about the cysts on my ovaries. And so going through the motions of all that and then getting my thyroid levels checked again, that was okay. Okay. And so just going through the motions of all that, I really it just made me realize it wasn't that important to be a mom of two babies. It really wasn't. And putting my son through whatever would come along with me going through fertility treatments, because if I have to go through fertility treatments this time, the the traditional way with all of the stemming and such like that. It was going to be an entirely different experience than the first time. And the way my body would react, the way my hormones would react, which in turn would be different from how I would react to going through treatments. And I just didn't want to put him through that. And my husband was very disappointed. He wanted two kids, you know, but I just told him my concerns. I said, you know, there's a lot more cons to this situation than pros for me. That's money that could be spent in our businesses. You know, that's money that could be spent for his private education. That's time that I could spend with him at a park, (laughs) you know, emotionally unfit a lot of times when you're going through infertility treatments. And of course I could get a therapist and a counselor. But to me, and then having been a premature mom, I'm highly likely to give birth again early. And so I would need a surclage and all these things to prevent early pregnancy again. And then if the cerclage didn't work, then that means I would be in the hospital for ample amount of weeks or however long away from him. And he doesn't fully understand what's happening. I just didn't it just didn't make sense for me in my life. And there was things that were that were coming along in the community and the community was growing. And I didn't want to step away from the community and being of support in the way that I do with the podcast, and Instagram handle. And so it just didn't make sense for me to move forward with fertility treatments for a sibling. And now I'm over 35. I'm 38 now. And so I just made the decision that it wasn't the pros wasn't enough for me. Having a second child in the household just that wasn't enough for me to feel comfortable going through treatments again and disrupting my son's life as he knows it, you know? Yeah.
0: It's, you know, it's one thing to decide for yourself. I don't want to put myself through that again, but to also have to consider, you know, what, what would happen if you were on bed rest for a month, you know, and your son little and needing you still, you know, it's, it's really, you know, nobody's decision, but your own, so I, you know, I've heard very similar. I feel like, you know, the harder, harder it is to get pregnant and the more interventions you have to go through and the more difficult the pregnancy, the more likely you are to just say, nope, that's good. I'm done. Uh, I've got my one. I'm going to, I'm going to take my prize and run away with
1: it and never go back, you know? Absolutely. And that was my thinking. That was my thinking. I would have loved to have another little baby and to possibly get through an entire pregnancy, you know, at least up to 35, 36 weeks. But I just couldn't see it being a good situation. <laughs> yeah. I, couldn't, I didn't see it being a good situation for our family specifically. And I, I just always told my husband look, if it happens on its own, it happens on its own. That's fine. But other than that, I don't want to force it. I, um, I don't want to do it again. I don't. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I actually it's had hard. my yeah. had my best friend on the show a few Did months you? ago talking about her, you know, sort of similar journey to getting to her first child and then deciding she didn't want to put her body through that again. And going down the adoption road for their second child. And, you know, Wonderful. that comes with its own set of challenges. Mm-hmm. It's not like that was exactly easy
1: either. Yeah. So. yeah, and it's a long process. The adoption process is just as long as the fertility treatment process for those of us like myself who, you know, suffer for four years, five years or whatever the case, or people who actually go through fertility treatments and don't get pregnant a second time like I did. You know, they go years doing fertility treatments off and on and not getting pregnant. Adoption is very similar in that way. Things happen all the time. So there's no easy way into this thing, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when did you decide to start talking about your story publicly and start sharing publicly?
1: It wasn't until I had came up with the idea to start the podcast, actually. And I had an account on IG when before I had my son, but it was a private page and I just got the publicity of it all just got really just really scared me at them at that time. And so I had closed the account right around the time that I got pregnant and I started revisiting the idea of getting back on Instagram and being an advocate and creating a podcast. And so that's when I started openly speaking about infertility. And it never really was about me I've always been community focused. And so when I came onto Instagram and connected with people, I was following on all their stories. They would follow me because I would make quotes and things that they resonated with. And so from there, it just it just grew and it continues to grow slowly as people come in and out of infertility and IVF and moving on and being childless and and such like that. But it's available for those who need it, you know. And I just wanted to be a voice of support, honestly. And because there weren't many at the time, even still now, people of color sharing publicly, I felt like I could do it and I could be that face and that voice for those looking for others like themselves who looked like them. Yeah. And being a point of contact. Yeah.
0: I don't see a lot of people really talking publicly or sometimes people will have like a fertility finsta, you know, yeah, have, yeah. where it's not under their real name. It's, it's anonymous, you know? And I think part of that is because, you know, maybe not everybody in their, in their real life knows what they're going through. Maybe they're mm-hmm. afraid of talking about things publicly, um, they're afraid of like their boss finding out. Yeah. What have been some of the the pros and cons of of having a public fertility advocacy account?
1: Well, I think the pros, of course, is just connecting with people who have shared the same headspace, who want change, who want to see change, maybe possibly be change themselves, and. Connecting with people from all over the nation, all over the world and gaining different perspectives that you yourself never thought of or resources. It's a great platform for resources and finding organizations and companies and such that support people with fertility struggles. And then the cons is just you putting yourself out there to scrutiny, to judgment. I haven't had a lot of that. And I and it's not because I don't make controversial content because i do there's a lot you of political do. things i speak about <laughs> on the page and people it's off-putting for a lot of people because they're like this is about fertility not about politics but in truth it all goes hands in hand right because if they say you can't do that now anymore then it becomes political right so it's off-putting that's why i say slow growth because when i start talking political then that's when people unfollow that's when people want to talk bad about me behind my back and such and all that. So I don't really care. I'm there for the people who want the support that I know how to give in the way that I do. And if the political aspects of fertility are too much for you, go on. Ignorance must be bliss for you, but (laughs) I I don't operate that way, you know? And so it's really about finding balance within myself and, 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 reminding, not really reminding because I've always known this, but reminding yourself that this is just a small fraction of your life. Being on Instagram and getting support, be intentional about who you follow, be intentional about the content that you consume, because you can really get sucked in. And I have literally watched people sit on there all day long and fight and argue and And just judge each other and speak bad about each other. It is just so wild. And I stay out of the drama. So the drama doesn't follow me much. But of course, when I make my political posts, I always lose a couple hundred people. But that's fine. You weren't meant to be here. That's all. It's all good. (laughs) Yeah, I feel the
0: same way. I mean, you know, reproductive health and women's health and... You know, fertility treatments—it's all so inherently political and yep. politicized. I, I think it's not necessarily mm-hmm. political in and of itself, but there are a lot of people who care what we do or do not do with our our uteruses. You know, and that's where it's yeah, like,
1: okay, unfortunately,
0: this is where we have to speak up about it. But you know, since you are so sort of connected to the fertility community. What's the general feeling these days around, you know, I feel like so much is so unknown about how the Roe v. Wade decision is going to impact IVF and fertility treatments. But like, you know, I'm seeing all the things like delete your period tracking app, move yeah. your move your frozen embryos. Like how, how do you think people are feeling these days? I think they're
1: just really confused. Heck I am. You know, I, yeah. I don't feel, I live in a blue state right now, but we're actually considering moving to a warmer state and going farther Mm -hmm. South to be, you know, closer to water and better weather and stuff as far as that's concerned. And it's a red state and most of the South is. And so it's a little unnerving. But at the same time, I know that I have the resources to protect myself and my son if I needed to. Luckily for me, because we aren't pursuing fertility treatments anymore, that is not my personal concern. But it is my concern for those still out there trying to conceive. And a lot of people are just confused. A lot of people do not know how to interpret these legislations. Like people will post the legislations online and it's not in layman terms. That doesn't help anyone. It's not useful and it doesn't help. And so if we're going to present that kind of information, break it down for people. And I think that people also are scared and it prohibits them from doing the research about what their local state will be doing. When can we vote? Who are the political figures that we can trust and what side are they on? It's like so crazy right now. And I think people forget and we all forget that this is a long game. It took them many years to get to this point, to take that away, on a federal level and giving it back to the states. Right. So it's going to take many years to gain it back. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen overnight. I cringe even saying it, but it's the truth. These things do do not return to as they should be, I guess, in in a quick manner, unfortunately. And so you just have to stay abreast of what's happening in your local state and making the vote, even if you think your vote doesn't count. And I think a lot of people feel like it's very conspiracy theory going on right now, especially with the period tracking ads but at the end of the day it's data that's being used and collected to learn more about us and how we behave and it's not it's what used to be conspiracy theory is no longer it's it's present and it's real and it's manifested
0: yeah the data privacy laws and I think we've all just kind of almost turned a blind eye to it or even kind of joked about it it's like oh you know Zuckerberg's tracking me he knows this he knows that but it's like I don't know if you've had this situation where you're having a conversation in real life with a friend, and then you get shown the ad for that thing. Like, it's one thing if I Google, you know, pink socks or whatever, and then (laughs) I'm getting like a million advertisements. But like, if I mention to a friend in passing, like, Hey, I really wanted to get those pink socks. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing sock ads. I'm like whoa. (laughs) Very
1: freaky, very freaky Friday-ish. I remember the first time it happened to me and I'm like, this cannot be life. And then it started happening more frequently with conversations. And I'm like, oh yeah, they're definitely listening. At least not maybe a physical, I think people think that there's a a physical person listening and there are at certain times of the day, but it's mostly just this Uh, AI technology, this big old brain that they've created in their servers that's collecting the data, collecting the information, and then they're able to go in and get what they need when they need it and learn the behaviors of people. And so they can keep us on the (laughs) ground.
0: Yeah, there's a a fine line, I think, sometimes between like being a conspiracy theorist and like
1: just being logical online (laughs)
0: like you know I definitely have the little camera covers on my laptop you know it's like those those sort of things where it's like okay this probably isn't doing anything but it makes me feel better so
1: (laughs) yeah my husband's an engineer by a degree and so I have heard it all about Mm -hmm. how powerful what they do and how powerful it really is it really is it's not as conspiracy theory as people think unfortunately and Yeah, you just got to protect yourself and get outside, get offline, you know. Unless, of course, you're listening to the podcast while you're walking in it. That's balance.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's been some other shifts in social media too. And I don't know if you maybe noticed this too, but I mean, definitely with the algorithm and what they Mm -hmm. choose to show to people and not show. I'm sure, for example, you never imagined yourself dancing around in a sperm costume, you know, Oh no! someone had asked you (laughs) 10 years ago if you'd be doing that, probably wouldn't have predicted that.
1: Not at all. Like I say, I always tell people, like I, I, the stuff that I do online and stuff that I do in my personal life when I'm with friends and family, like I'm, this is me offline in many ways, but I've just taken it up a notch and put myself out there. And it's scary at first. When they first created the reels, I just I just jumped head first into it. I said, I'll just do something different than I normally would do in my personal life in the way that I'm doing it now. So I never nobody would have ever been able to predict to me that I'd be wearing a T-shirt on my head, pretending to be sperm. <laughs> yeah. The highlight of my evening, you know, one of the highlights of my evening, but I enjoy it. And if I don't enjoy it, then I won't create it. And which is why a lot of people want to see more of that kind of a thing. But I have to I have to give space to myself and make sure that I'm in a good place to do it. And my inspiration is not planned. My inspiration is very, very sporadic. And it is it is very in the moment artistic like. So when it comes to me, it comes to me and I go with that. I don't force it at all.
0: No, I I love, I think you do such a great job with reels because, you know, they're authentic and they're always kind of a a little humorous insight into the life of someone struggling with infertility. So I always appreciate sort of the lighter side of of the infertility journey stuff. I feel like, you know, so much, I think people don't realize how much time it takes to make a reel.
1: It's a lot, you guys. It's a lot. <laughs>
0: to like come up with the idea, to film it, to edit it. to like put the, mu- you know, find the music, place the music, put the text and it takes a long time. And then you have to be there to like interact with the comments mm-hmm. and the DMs and yeah. yeah, it just, you know, it's, and I've I've gotten negative feedback on reels from people who are like, why mm. are you dancing around doing a stupid TikTok thing? Shouldn't you be <laughs> like,
1: Take it up Yeah, they always with want to Mark. put you in a box. People like to put us in boxes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. like, well, take it up with Mark Zuckerberg because if I do a, an educational, inspirational, like infographic, it gets seen by like five people
1: now. So it's like yeah. things yeah. have
0: changed, you know.
1: <laughs> it's always constantly evolving online. And it's a good thing and it's a bad thing because when you think you've got something, then there's something else coming out that you have to learn. So it's crazy and this is for anybody, whether you're an influencer or not, is just knowing when to take a step back mm-hmm. and and getting into reality again. We've been online for two and a half years with one another. And so I think that we have to be more. We have to be comfortable with people not always showing up every single day. And, don't let, and if you're in the influencer space, don't let any any educational influencer guru tell you that you need to show up online every day. That is not healthy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely not. Boundary. I'm all about boundaries, 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 boundaries Boundaries on on who has access. Just because you're available doesn't mean you're accessible or what is it? They say something like that, something like that, (laughs) (laughs) you know it, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So any favorite resources that that may help people who are struggling with fertility?
1: Yeah. So if you are yourself seeking fertility treatments at some point or or you're in the midst of it, the Cade Foundation is one of my favorites for their resources. And also they give away grants. And unfortunately, a lot they'll be they'll have rounds where they won't get any applicants for grants. And I think a lot of that is just pride and people not wanting to admit that they need the help. Look, it's ten thousand dollars minimum. OK, to get started with fertility treatments beyond the IUI stage. Don't be afraid to get the help that you need. And so the Cade Foundation gives away $10,000 grants. Another great resource for grants is the Bundle of Joy Foundation by Samantha Bush. Her husband is Rowdy Bush. He is a NASCAR driver. And then The Broken Brown Egg is by Regina Towson. She offers a lot of resources. She comes into, and she's a librarian by degree and by nine to five. And so she comes around, she comes into contact with a lot of different organizations who also offer grants. So if you follow her, you will be able to get access to that as well. Apart from the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation, I like Fertility Rescripted. Which is Canadian. Their founder is in Canada, I believe. And they have a podcast as well, offering more evidence backed and it's statistical data to, and approaches to managing yourself and your fertility care. And then, who's another one I can think of right at the top of my head? If you ever find yourself deciding to be childless because of your condition, chasing creation is another good resource for uh, the childless after infertility community. If you follow me, you can go through my list of followers. There's all kinds of organizations out there that are popping up everywhere. Now it seems that a lot of fertility clinics are getting into more of the resourcefulness side of care and giving resources for mental health while you're going through fertility treatments, if you choose to and or how to support you mentally if you're just struggling to conceive naturally. And then also if you check out my Instagram handle of previous guests that I've had, some of them have been organizations and resources and doctors who have come on and offer their expertise as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Tell people where they can find you, both your Instagram and your podcast.
1: Yeah, so you can find me any and everywhere at infertility and me podcast
0: awesome thank you do you have one thing that you would tell people struggling with fertility to take away from this episode
1: don't forget who you are don't forget who you were before all of this and learning to love yourself in your condition right now and finding joy again
0: Thank you so much, Monique. It was so nice chatting with you. Yes. I will be seeing you online, interacting with your, so. with your real. <laughs> thank you so much to the audience for listening. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with The Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced.